Welcome to Heart of the Matter, a podcast series from the Heart Foundation of Jamaica, where we discuss issues concerning your health. I'm your host, Vanetta Nurse. In our fifth episode today, we explore the importance of food policies and their impact on health and the economy. Joining us today are Dr. Audrey Morris, who is a decentralized regional advisor, food and nutrition advisor at the Pan American Health Organization Office for Jamaica, Dr. Tamu Davidson, Head of the Chronic Disease and Injury Department Surveillance, Disease Prevention and Control Division at the Caribbean Public Health Agency. We also have with us Mr. Jasper Barnett, Health Economist at the Ministry of Health and Wellness Jamaica, as well as Dr. Vanessa White-Barrow, Nutritionist and Head of the School of Allied Health at University of Technology Jamaica. Thank you all so much for joining us. Let's first discuss the importance of food policies with Dr. Audrey Morris from the PAHO WHO Office for Jamaica. Um, Non-communicable diseases like type 2 diabetes, hypertension, heart disease and others have placed a burden on our health system and individuals, including increasing our vulnerability to COVID-19. From PAHO's perspective, Dr. Morris, why are food policies considered to be such an important solution to this public health problem? You are indeed correct about the burden of NCDs. Unhealthy diets have been identified as one of the risk factors for NCDs, and they are in fact the leading risk factor for the global burden of disease and premature death pushing households into poverty and slowing down the economic growth of countries. And this is mainly attributable to high sodium in the diet and suboptimal intake of foods like whole grains, fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds, and also omega-3 fatty acids. So PAHO and WHO believe that it is up to governments to accept primary responsibility and to lead multi-sectoral national actions to ensure that there is a legislative and regulatory environment that will enable NCD reduction. So this includes the necessary public policies aimed at reducing the consumption of products harmful to health and promoting healthy lifestyles. These are among the policy options and cost-effective interventions that we refer to as the best buys and other recommended interventions for the prevention and control of NCDs. Some of the policies that have proven effective to address unhealthy diet include reformulation of foods to reduce salt intake, elimination of industrially produced trans fats, regulation of the food served in schools, restriction of marketing of unhealthy food to children, the taxation of sugar-sweetened beverages or SSBs, and the use of front of package labels that provide simple, visual, easier to understand messages. Thank you, Dr. Morris. And very important point you brought out there is the government's responsibility and the need for a number of, a package of policies to address the problem. Can you give us some examples in Latin America and the Caribbean where policies have been implemented and how they have helped to reduce the NCD burden? Certainly, some of the policies that I've mentioned impact on intake of unhealthy foods, and in that way, they will reduce NCDs. So here are a few examples. I mentioned front of package warning labels. So these influence food choices, and this promotes food reformulation, and this has been adopted in several countries. However, One particular type, the high in octagons, these are the type which have been adopted by Chile, Uruguay, Peru, and Mexico. And the recent research in Jamaica found the high in octagon to be the most effective system for correctly identifying when a product has excessive amounts of the nutrients of concern, such as sodium, sugar, and saturated fats. And the octagon octagon is also very useful in correctly identifying the least harmful product when consumers are faced with that choice. And it also increased consumers' intention to purchase the least harmful product. Marketing restrictions are another type of action and the implementation of the high in octagons in Chile facilitated 
the enactment of a law restricting the marketing of foods with high levels of the nutrients that I mentioned, the nutrients of concern to children. Then there's the sugar drinks tax, and we have seen a tax on sugar-sweetened beverages implemented in Mexico and Barbados, which in both countries has resulted in a decreased intake of these beverages, particularly in vulnerable groups and without reducing employment. And then school nutrition policies. Within the Caribbean, there have been some policy decisions impacting nutrition of school children, including the development and implementation of a wide-ranging school nutrition policy in Grenada and more focused actions such as restricting SSBs in schools in Trinidad and Tobago and in Jamaica. Okay, thank you. Very good news there to to know that some these policies are actually working and we'll actually speak some more and look a little bit deeper into the positive impacts of those policies. So uh, we're now going to explore a little bit more about the Caribbean's perspective on this issue. And we have Dr. Tamu Davidson with us from the Caribbean Public Health Agency. Dr. Davidson, thanks for joining us again. Could you give us a quick overview of how NCDs and obesity have been affecting us in the Caribbean? Thank you for having CARFA here today. Certainly NCDs is the major and number one um, reason for mortality within the Caribbean region and has been for some time. Obesity is a major risk factor for NCDs and in particular that's driven by behavioral risk factors such as unhealthy diet and physical inactivity and more so unhealthy diet. So when you look at the Latin America within the context of the Americas, we have um, the Caribbean, non-Latin, sorry, Caribbean in the context of the Americas, you see that the non-Latin Caribbean has the highest rate, mortality rate of NCDs and some of the highest rates of obesity in the region. And so this is really a public health crisis. Um, We know um, that NCDs and their risk factors have an impact on the socioeconomic and well-being of the entire Caribbean and is a developmental um, challenge and um, for this region. And so um, it's important that as a Caribbean region that we address this problem and this is something that we have been working towards um, really addressing from our historic um, summit in 2007 where the heads of government committed to the Port of Spain declaration on NCDs. And this formed the catalyst for a global movement around addressing NCDs, including obesity, and more specifically, childhood obesity within the Caribbean region and the world. Okay, thank you for that. And CARFA has has responded with the six-point policy package, which has been endorsed by CARICOM. Um, Can you explain a little bit about the the tenets of the policy package? What are some of the recommendations from CARFA in that package? Okay, so the six-point policy package was formed out of the CARFA Plan of Action for for Promoting Healthy Weights in the Caribbean, specifically for the prevention and control of childhood obesity. And this package has six points. So the first is really addressing food labeling. And um, as mentioned earlier by our PAHO representative, this is based on the WHO, what we call best buys. These are cost-effective interventions. So food labeling is one. The second in the package is developing nutrition standards and guidelines for schools and other institutions. The third is food marketing. And fourth is the nutrition quality of food supplies. So the levels of harmful ingredients within the food supplies. Fifth is trade and fiscal policies. And sixth is addressing the food chain incentives. So this is what we called our six point policy package. And this has been implemented through a multi-sectoral approach um, through different um, partners throughout the region. Okay, why, why do you believe that the six-point policy package will work and, and to benefit the Caribbean people or public health in the Caribbean? 
Okay, so certainly it addresses the what we know as the key key best buys or evidence-based policies we know that work that help to improve the food environment to create this healthy environment to support persons in making the healthy choice the best choice so if we look at food labeling um, one of the areas that we're working on is looking at the front of package warning labeling for foods and so when you go into the supermarket to purchase food, you should be able to easily, at a glance, look at this package to decide what, whether or not this food is suitable and, it, and, it's, and it's healthy for consumption. So making your choice should be an easy um, choice. And so we want to ensure that this information is available. So that's another one policy that we're working on and um, the countries will be voting on that policy shortly. The second policy is that we need to ensure we have standards and guidelines for schools and institutions to ensure that we create again this healthy environment to ensure that the persons that are there have foods that are available to them. They can the healthy choice is the easier choice to support them in making that um, intervention. So all of these are key policies to really create that healthy environment to make the healthy choice, the easier choice for persons um, in the Caribbean. And this policy actually impacts everyone throughout the life cycle from children right back to the older adults in terms of supporting the environment to make this uh, uh, food available that's um, healthy and they have access to this healthy food. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And how can Caribbean governments transform the six-point policy package into actionable steps to, to stem the obesity and NCD epidemic that we're facing? Okay, thank you. So if, when we look at these policies, we have already initiated work in transforming these policies into actionable steps. I'd first like to however, start with uh, grouping the countries into those that may not already have a non-communicable disease prevention and control plan. In that case, they would need to do some um, situation analysis around where they are with, with respect to some of these policies mentioned in the package. Um, then for those who already have an existing plan, they need to really look at to ensure that their plans are aligned to some of these policy interventions. And um, thirdly, for those who whose plans may have expired, that's an opportunity to integrate some of these policies. But then if we step back and look at the regional level, um, these policies are being implemented and developed, well, being developed at a regional level. Um, so to guide regional standards so that um, countries will have a template in order to assist them in integrating and implementing some of these policies. So for example, there's work being done around food labeling um, by CrossQ. There's also work that has been done in collaboration with PAHO on developing technical recommendations for schools, um, nutrition policies in schools. So these are just some of these areas that are being worked on currently. And so we're doing this as a region and as, as a Caribbean group. Um, also, we are working in um, on plans around really improving the health, unhealthy diet, as well as a Caribbean region. So this is something that has been endorsed, as you mentioned, by the heads of state, and also jointly by the COSAD and COTAD in the Caribbean region. So this is actually a joint effort that we're working on as as a Caribbean group um, with the member states. Okay, thank you, Dr. Davidson. And pointing out there that the problem that we face is Caribbean-wide, not just Jamaican, and strong leadership from CARFA there in terms of presenting governments with the opportunity to implement evidence-based policies to to um, address the issue of NCDs and obesity. Thank you. And th I'd just like to add that this is really a joint effort by regional institutions working with CARICOM Secretariat and um, through COSAD, COTED, working with PAHO and many other mm -hmm. regional institutions 
with the aim to um, and of and civil society as well yeah. with the Healthy Caribbean Coalition with its aim towards really a reducing childhood obesity, reducing obesity in the region, and also unhealthy diets, and um, towards really reducing and and reversing the um, tide with respect to NCDs and um, towards aim in, in achieving the, the sustainable development goals um, 3.4 which looks at reducing by a third premature mortality due to NCDs by 2030 and or other targets that we have agreed to um, in terms of reducing um, premature mortality due to NCDs by 2025 by 25%. Um, this also um, at the base of this response is the landmark 2007 Port of Spain declaration to fight NCDs in the region, um, which uh, we are working towards addressing this problem, which is not just a Caribbean problem, it's a global problem. Thank you for that, Dr. Davidson. Thank you. Similar to Barbados, Mexico has implemented and evaluated a tax on sugary beverages. Joining us is Alejandro Calvillo. He's director at El Poder del Consumidor, um, which is a Mexican civil society association established to defend consumer rights. Alejandro, thank you for joining us. No, it's a pleasure. Okay. Um, Mexico's sugar-sweetened beverage tax. Can you tell us a little bit about it, the percentage? Um, I believe it was an excise tax, um, and why why, and when it was implemented? Yeah, the, the tax, uh, the soda tax was implemented in 2014, and the tax is uh, around 10% of the cost. Uh, our proposal w- was uh, 20%. No, but uh, the interference of the industry, the influence of mm-hmm. the in- industry, no, reduced this uh, percentage to only 10%. No, and uh, we are pushing to increase no, the soda tax because all the international recommendations, all the studies shows that uh, a 20% tax is a good uh, a tax because you have a, a, a better re- reduction of soda consumption and we have a very good examples of after Mexico in UK in Portugal in India in many places m- many cities in the United States that shows that a 20% or more tax is a, is a, a good uh, point uh, to, to begin Right. And um, is the tax earmarked for any public health um, program? This is another problem, no, uh, because we asked to to, uh, to earmark this uh, soda tax to introduce water fountains inside schools and public spaces. Uh, but the government never in the story mark any kind of tax and the argument is that if they began to earmark some tax uh, this will be like a cascade of uh, demands to earmark another taxes and the government will not have the liberty to uh, to invest in what they want to invest but uh, at the same time that the tax was approved in parallel uh, a law to introduce water fountains inside school was approved. No, but uh, they don't have a, they don't put uh, the enough resources to do it. Okay. And this is this is the situation. Is a a twenty percent is a ten percent soda tax, and is not a in market. But we are trying to increase to twenty percent mm-hmm. and to earmark the tax. Right. Yes. So um, in the evaluation of the tax, what were the findings in terms of economy and as well as the consumption of the sugary beverages? Yeah, we have a few independent evaluations. One from the first year of the soda tax, 2014, and the another one in uh, 
2015. The reduction on consumption the first year was around 6% and the second year around 9%. Uh, we don't have more results because we don't have uh, independent research. You can imagine that the mm -hmm. soda industry pay some research, not to say that this not have a, a good results, that did not reduce consumption, that did not have mm -hmm. uh, health benefits, and that also say that this will uh, have a, a very strong impact on jobs. But the reality also, you know, is another independent research published like the other two that I mentioned in 2014 and 2015 uh, that shows the reduction of 6% and 9% on consumption. These uh, evaluations were published in important uh, is scientific uh, uh, magazines. Mm -hmm. Uh, and but another evaluation shows also that uh, the soda tax no have impacts on economy and also on jobs, no. Okay. And it, yes. it, it, this is the same that uh, happened with other kind of evaluation in other countries. Yes, it, um, and it's the reduction in consumption and no impact on jobs, similar to to what we do find in other countries in the region. So in terms of, of those evaluations, um, in your opinion, you know, is evidence strong enough for the rest of the, for other countries that haven't implemented a tax to do so, such as um, Jamaica, um, we haven't implemented a tax and other countries in the Caribbean? Yeah, I, I think that, that, that uh, the soda tax is a very, very important policy that we need to earmark the, the tax, no? And uh, for example, uh, we have a, a now very recently a, a research published that shows that uh, um, I can uh, uh, let me see how to say in oral health. Mm -hmm. No, mm -hmm. yes, oral it's health is improving after uh, the soda tax. This was uh, published. Uh, two weeks ago in Mexico was a review of, of the, the quantity of visits to dentists, no, uh, the, uh, the epidemiological data that shows that uh, Im impacts on teeth uh, and decay, no, reduce after the soda tax is a great benefit yes. for the oral health mm -hmm. that have a great cost for families. Yes, and this is something we, I mean, this is an important finding, something we overlook in terms of, of um, dental caries as a non-communicable disease, uh, especially in young children and, and how, you know, drinking sugary drinks really leads to that. And this is a very important finding in addition to the um, no impact on jobs and the redu reduction in consumption. Uh, thank you so much for joining us and sharing with us, Alejandro. It's a pleasure. And I hope you have a soda tax uh, uh, in the in the next uh, years or in this year, I, I hope you're foreshadowing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Bye. Okay. Okay. Let's now speak about the impact of these food policies on health and the economy. In some of the countries that uh, in Latin America and the Caribbean region that have implemented some of these food policies. Chile, in particular, has implemented a comprehensive food law. It's Chile's law of food labeling and advertising. So we are joined today by Professor Guillermo Paraje, an economist and full professor at the School of Business, Universidad Adolfo Ibanez in Chile. Welcome, Professor. How are you? Hello, I'm uh, fine. Very happy to be here with you today talking about this important topic. Okay, thanks. Thank you for joining us. So tell us a little bit about Chile's law of food labeling and advertising. Well, this law was uh, discussed uh, during uh, quite a bit of uh, time. In fact, uh, there was like a 10-year discussion of, of this initiative. 
uh, which was delayed in its uh, in its uh, implementation because of strong uh, lobby of uh, of the food and beverage industry, uh, and and the law was uh, first implemented in June 2016, and then further stages of the law were implemented in June 2018 and June 2019, and the law basically. Um, mandates um, food and beverage companies to provide a very simple um, nutritional information on their packages um, by by putting uh, four black labels uh, if the the food um, has uh, high levels of uh, sugars sodium um, saturated fats and uh, calories. On top of that, the law forbids a company to target uh, children in their publicity uh, through cartoons or or, or, or or this sort of figures. And so, for instance, the famous uh, tiger in one of this uh, serial was uh, forbade in Chile under this uh, law or giving uh, with the food uh, uh, toys to children or any other uh, other, other um, uh, marketing uh, strategy to to increase the consumption of, of this uh, unhealthy food uh, in children it also forbade uh, selling these products in uh, at schools in school canteens and also forbade um, tv publicity, TV advertisement uh, a, during um, children's uh, viewing hours uh, of, 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 of the food that is labeled with these um, black uh, signs. Basically, that's, that's uh, um, the, the most important uh, regulations under this uh, law. Yes, and it's very revolutionary because um, as one of the few countries that have implemented marketing restrictions for children, you know, um, in, in response to the high rates of childhood obesity and the high rates of NCDs. So the law, um, you said, was implemented partially June 2016, 2018, and 2019. So an evaluation was done. What, what did the evaluation of the law show in terms of the effect on the economy and consumption of unhealthy foods? Well, there, there were various, uh, several evaluations. Uh, the first evaluations that were conducted by the government uh, were on the, on the um, changes in the um, purchasing behavior of especially mothers uh, and how well the, the population uh, evaluated uh, this uh, this uh, set of, uh, of regulations, and in that cases, in, in that case, the evaluation showed that uh, the mothers changed uh, in, in certain categories, especially their purchasing behaviors, choosing food with less of this uh, or, or no of these uh, black signs, and that the population, uh, in general, and by a majority, uh, approved the the use of this. Uh, of this uh, nutritional information, so that that's on the on the on the purchasing um, uh, evaluation or, or changing the, 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 the changing in habits. Now, on the economic uh, impact, a recent uh, study that uh, I conducted with uh, some colleagues uh, and uh, has been already published in Food Policy in a, in a scientific journal showed that uh, the, at least uh, during the first stage of the implementation, so between uh, June 2016 and uh, December 2017, there was no change that could be attributable to, to this law in, in either employment or uh, real wages. So if, if uh, you compare the, the trend in employment and real wages before and after, the implementation of the law and compared for, for, for industries that were affected by this regulation and compared that, uh, those trends with, uh, with the trends that other industries not affected by, this, uh, by these regulations had, you, can, you cannot find any, any, any difference. So basically uh, that tells that uh, 
the law did not change the underlying trends that were after, sorry, before the implementation of the law in uh, employment and, and real wages. And that's really important evidence because we've heard the industry, the food industry arguments that these types of food policies can cause um, job losses as well as, you know, have significant socioeconomic um, issues and um, consequences. So just a, just a last line, in your opinion, how do you feel about the evidence in terms of justification for other countries to implement these types of food policies? Well, I mean, the, the evidence in the case of Chile and, and in, other can, in other countries, not, not in the case of labeling, or, but, but in case of uh, taxing unhealthy food, uh, it's quite uh, it's quite clear, and and again, there is no surprise when you find uh, or when you read about these uh, these findings. Um, imagine yourself going to a supermarket uh, and um, deciding not to spend in a, in a food that because because it has these uh, black uh, labels, these black uh, warnings. What are you going to do? Well, you will purchase other food <laughs> that does not have this uh, this uh, warning label. So, in terms of employment, nothing happens, and and that is what uh, we find. I mean, the, we 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 find when when when, you con when you, we conduct this this sort of uh, studies at the aggregate level, there is no change because it's not that people stop buying and burn the, 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 their money. They buy other things. So at, at the very worst, some firms may have uh, their employment uh, reduced or, or, or some, some, some sectors may have their employment reduced, but that those, those jobs will, will not be lost because they will be created in other sectors where the demand is increased because of this law. At the aggregate level, nothing happens. And, and that is something, again, that is completely uh, expected, is, is what you would expect uh, even before uh, looking at, uh, at the figures. Thank you. Thank you for being, bringing the, the, this type of evidence out for us and just, again, just the clear justification and um, evidence to, to implement policies that have worked and there's evidence for this type of these types of policies. Thank you for joining us again. You're welcome. My pleasure. Okay, let's move on now to countries that have implemented and evaluated uh, tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. And we're going to speak about Barbados's sugary drinks tax. We are joined today by Professor Winston Moore, Professor of Economics at the University of the West Indies, Cave Hill Campus, to discuss this particular food policy. Professor Moore, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, and, and thank you for inviting me to be part of the podcast. Sure, thanks again. So Barbados has, has implemented a sugary drinks tax. So can you tell us a little bit about some details on the tax, why and when it was implemented, and the, the amount, the percentage of the tax? Sure. So you just asked a very open-ended question <laughs> to an economics professor. <laughs> uh, so at any point in time when I use any concepts that are a little bit weird uh, or sound a little bit strange, please let me know, okay? Okay. Uh, so um, we introduced our sugar-sweetened beverage tax in 2016, and it was a ad valorem tax. And I'm, I'm definitely going to dis, um, describe what that means. Um, it was introduced at 2%, and it was applied to the value of the sugar-sweetened beverage. Um, there, there are a number of ways that you can apply a tax to a sugar-sweetened beverage. You can have an excise tax, which would simply take a, 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 a tax which, um, which adds on to the, to, the, to the price of the item. So say, for example, if you have a drink that costs a dollar, you might add a dollar onto that. that. That's sort of like an excise tax, and that is very popular in some countries. But we use the ad valorem tax because you, the, the higher the value of the sugar-sweetened beverage, the, the higher the tax rate or the higher the tax that the consumer would have to pay. Um, it was introduced at a very low level of 2%. 
Um, to give you some context, the WHO recommends that the these taxes, these taxes on sugar sweetened beverages, should be around 30%. Um, so in the following year, it was raised to 10%. Uh, so it's a little bit higher, but it, it does mean that we still have some room to go in relation to the uh, to taxing sugar sweetened beverages. One real interesting aspect of our tax is that. The, the tax is applied before the application of the value-added tax. So mm. you apply the tax to the value of the, the sugar sweetened beverage first, the 10%, mm -hmm. and then you apply the, the value-added tax, which then gives you a net effect of about 11.75%. So even though the, the tax on sugar sweetened beverages is around 10%, the, 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 the nominal mm -hmm. after-tax mm -hmm. um, rate is around 11.75%. Um, the tax is applied to a wide variety of sugar sweetened beverages, so it includes uh, fruit juices, um, includes um, aerated beverages, um, waters, you know, there's some waters that um, have added sugar to them. Um, mm -hmm. And anything that has any sort of drink that has um, sugar added to it, malt beverages, um, beverages containing cocoa, um, those type of things would uh, would attract the tax on sugar sweetened beverages. And it's applied to both domestic as well as imported beverages. And we needed to, to do this because we can't discriminate between um, imported or domestically produced beverages mm -hmm. uh, once we are to, uh, being consistent with our WTO agreements. So it was an interesting tax that was applied at that time. Initially, we we made, it was a, a combination of a tax revenue measure as well as a health measure. But over time, I think most Barbadians and, and policymakers and, and definitely the lobbyists are seeing it as a health-related measure. Um, it it generates some revenue. Um, not an awful lot of revenue. It generates about five million Barbados dollars in revenue per year. Um, to give you some context, there's about 2.5 million U.S. dollars, 2.5 million U.S. dollars per year. To give you some context for that, um, the it costs us around 130 million dollars, or uh, around around 65 million dollars each year to run our hospital. Um, mm. So it's it generates some revenue, but it still can't pay for all, a lot of the big ticket health right. items in Barbados. Mm -hmm. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, and the other thing is not earmarked. So the the revenue collected from um, the tax on sugar sweetened beverages just goes straight into the the general pool of tax funds in Barbados. It's not earmarked to do any particular health related activity. Um, so it's an interesting tax um, that we've applied in Barbados. It gives us um, some really interesting uh, data that we can use to then think of how we might want to um, um, address some health-related issues in the future. Okay, and the, the tax was evaluated. Could you give us some, some information about some of the findings in terms of the effect on the economy and consumption? Yes, please. Um, so one of the first things that we um, looked at was the impact on of the tax on the actual prices that consumers would have faced when they um, purchased these products from the supermarket. And as I would have mentioned earlier, the, the nominal after VAT increase was supposed to be 11.75%. But when we um, collected data on the prices of sugar sweetened beverages, we actually found that prices on average only went up by around 6%. So this essentially implied that some of the manufacturers in Barbados, some of the wholesalers that would have been imported these, importing these sugar sweetened beverages actually absorbed some of the price increase. And this is not surprising. If you are a business person and you're trying to maintain the sales for your product, you have one of two um, options. You can either um, see the sales for your product decline or you can try um, some alternative ways to make sure that the, the sales or your market share doesn't fall too much. And what it appears that a lot of the or some of the retailers and manufacturers in Barbados decided that they that they couldn't um, deal with an increase in prices of, of, above 10%. So they actually absorbed some of the price increase. 
Um, the the other impact that we found on the market was that there was a bit of substitution away to healthier beverages. Um, in fact, looking at the data, we, we saw that um, there was an increase in the demand for bottled water as a result uh, of the introduction of the tax on sugar-sweetened beverages. So it therefore implies that consumers were, were making the conscious decision to, um, to consume more bottled water rather than to consume um, the sugar-sweetened beverage um, that was on the same um, beverage shelf. So it was an interesting uh, mm-hmm. finding that, that emerged from the literature on, on this sugar-sweetened mm-hmm. beverage tax in Barbados. In relation to the demand for sugar-sweetened beverages themselves, um, we didn't see a significant reduction in overall demand for sugar-sweetened beverages. Uh, what was most apparent was a, as a substitution, a way to more healthier mm-hmm. alternatives. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't uh, any real evidence of persons switching to um, to more low sugar alternatives either. You know, for example, you can have low sugar um, beverages uh, in, in the supermarket aisle. There wasn't any real evidence that persons would have switched to those um, varieties. What some of the literature, however, has pointed towards is um, persons switching to more um, sugar crystals. So rather than, um, say, purchasing your um, aerated beverages in the supermarket, you can purchase your flavored crystals and you can make your juices at home yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we did see that persons um, began to consume more of those products, uh, again, probably as a means of substituting away from the more expensive um, beverages who, which would have now attracted the tax. Yes, and and I, I do believe that these are these are positive results, um, given that it, it's a it's a ten percent tax, and the WHO actually re- recommends um, much higher. And um, this, what you really want um, is the substitution and the, the consumption of the healthier beverage, which is I think I believe a really good start here. So, um, how do you, in your opinion, feel about the 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 evidence and as justification for other countries in the Caribbean? To implement such attacks. Yes, I, I think the, the fact that we obtained such interesting results um, with a really low tax on sugar seating beverages implies that uh, it gives some really great evidence mm-hmm. for planning um, the way forward for um, taxing sugar seating beverages in Barbados and the rest of the Caribbean. Um, Looking at, at this um, topic, there are a couple of areas or a couple of recommendations that uh, I would have for um, policymakers in Barbados and the rest of the Caribbean. The, the first one is definitely need to think about um, having a tax of around 30%. Um, you're not going to see any significant change in the demand for sugar seating beverages unless you at least hit that 30%. Uh, mark a lot of the literature uh, from across the world um, uh, papers from South Africa have shown that once you hit that 30% then you see um, consumers then starting to con- uh, purchase less of these sugar seeding beverages mm-hmm. the the second thing that you might also want to consider is um, having two different bands uh, and this is something that I've been pushing in Barbados um, as well uh, when you introduce a tax on sugar sweetened beverages it could potentially have a negative impact on your manufacturers um, because you're increasing the prices of their product and once you increase price there's going to be a, a, a reduction in demand even though it might be a small reduction you're going to see a reduction in the demand and might have some employment effects but one of the things that you can do is if you have two different bands, say for example, you have one tax that is 30% and another tax that is maybe 50%. Um, it, the tax that is 30%, you can maybe apply that to beverages that have reduced sugar content and um, beverages that have a, a higher sugar content might, might maybe attack, uh, attract a tax of maybe 50% or higher. And by having these two thresholds, you encourage manufacturers to produce more products with uh, reduced sugar content. 
and they might even move towards having um, no added sugars in their product mm -hmm. as well and therefore they might attract a tax of zero percent uh, in this way you sort of um, encourage innovation mm -hmm. by manufacturers um, and it's this this sort of policy would actually be um, positive and have a positive impact on, on growth have a positive impact on employment so um, these are the type of things that I guess economists think about how we can mm -hmm. structure a tax to encourage innovation and growth rather than and simply um, collecting revenue um, the I, I guess one of the final things that um, we also would have to think about is how we could um, reduce the cost of more healthier products as well. I, th I think this is something that um, the the panel was speaking about a little bit earlier. Uh, as small states, it's very difficult to um, to have subsidies on healthier products. Uh, we, we simply can't afford it in, in small developing countries to, to have subsidies. Um, we usually have these um, large budget deficits. We, have, we usually have really high levels of, of debt. So um, subsidies tend to be really difficult um, thing to, to, to implement in, in developing countries. But what you can do is maybe the, the, the tax revenue that you collect from sugar sweetened beverages could maybe um, be utilized to um, provide um, some subsidies to healthier products, mm -hmm. maybe to, um, to vegetables and, and maybe some homegrown varieties of juices, natural juices. These are the type of things that we could use the revenue for. Um, I wouldn't call it earmarking, mm -hmm. but I, what I would call it is maybe um, incentivizing right. more healthier yeah. products uh, mm -hmm. for the market. Yes, thank you so much for those very practical recommendations. And really, you said you were an economist and there would be difficult terms, but you really did explain it in a way for, for us to understand it. And, and the recommendations are very well pointed and taken. Thank you, Professor Moore, for joining us again. Okay, let's take a short break to listen to some important information. Food sweet, but you know what you eat? Me glad the ox calls it a funny. Not funny. Me say help, all you more than money. If no fun, healthy things in on the back. Put a warning on the front label, not the back. Enough sugar where you at? Put it on the front label. Enough salt where you at? Put it on the front label. Only for fat where you at? Put it on the front label. We no want search for the fox. We want the warning on the front of the pack. We no want a heart attack. We want to stay on track. Put it on the front label, not the back. A message from the Heart Foundation of Jamaica, Ministry of Health and Wellness and Partners. Welcome back. We're now going to speak about some evidence from Jamaica in relation to the economic burden of NCDs. We often think of disease burden as simply a health issue, but as um, Dr. Morris and Dr. Davidson before mentioned that um, the issue is actually quite far-reaching beyond the health sector, also an economic societal issue. Um, affecting with long-lasting effects. To discuss this further, we are joined by Mr. Jasper Barnett from the Minister of Health and Wellness, Jamaica, to really speak a little bit more on the economic impacts of NCDs. Um, Mr. Barnett, can you give us an overview of some of the economic impacts of NCDs in Jamaica? Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon um, again. Yes, well, certainly the impact of NCDs is easily is easily appreciated. Um, one survey suggested that persons reported spending as much as two thirds of their income on NCD care and treatment, as well as the fact that there was a study which suggested that over 15 or more years, we would lose an entire year's production, an entire year's GDP to the impact of NCDs. All right. um, it was felt that we'd lose about 17.2 uh, billion US dollars over that period of time. Uh, there have been studies which have shown that about, well, just under 2% of the population face economic hardship as a result of their health spending. So when we combine all these factors together, plus the fact that there are demands on the being placed on the dollar spend when persons have to pay for their health care rather than investing in in uh, enhancing life enhancing activities, 
education and so on, uh, better housing and so on. The, the impact is far ranging and definitely deleterious to a person's financial state. Yes, certainly. The, well, that figure that you mentioned is, is alarming. Two thirds of the income on NCD um, care, health care in terms of the individual. Um, when do you have any statistics as it relates to the indirect burden? So things like um, effect on productivity or premature death? Well, w actually we do. Um, there are several, well, let me share with you a particular concern we have, which is um, the impact on the economy in terms of generating savings or generating monies for investment purposes. Mm -hmm. yeah, the, the consequence of the NCD has been to reduce that as well. But there are areas where we believe we can make intervention in policy. And so we have looked in particular at about four categories, or what we can call four packages. Dr. Davidson mentioned the Best Buy package. So we could look at tobacco control policies, alcohol policies, uh, cardiovascular disease control interventions and diabetes control interventions. And when we look at all of those, we find that it is possible to save about 5,735 lives over the next 15 or so years because as the combined effect of those policies. And we're talking about returning about 67,000, over 67,000 uh, healthy life years. So persons who would demise prematurely, if we were to look at all of those years, the impact is, as I said, 67,000 healthy life years could be averted by those interventions. And the cost for that would be about 36 billion Jamaican dollars, which is less than half of the current spending on health uh, for mm -hmm. 2020-2021. Um, oh, very staggering figures. So what you're speaking of is that it's an, an investment case. Yes. So which helps us to better understand the benefits and costs. How sure. Can you explain to us in the simplest terms how such an analysis is done? All right. Um, the simplest way I could explain it is consider for every dollar spent uh, on the invest the, uh, invested in the intervention. Sorry, I uh, would have just said the cost would have been about thirty-seven or thirty-six point seven billion dollars. Right. So that's just the cost of it. If we're going to do a return on investment assessment, we look at the cost and we look at the benefit. And what we do is using various econometric modeling techniques, we come up with a dollar value for the health benefits. And we have found that if it, the cost is 37 billion for the intervention over the next 15 years, the benefits are $77.1 billion. So of course you see more than double mm -hmm. the, the cost of the intervention are the returns in in the health gains. All right, so in a nutshell, our analysis just looks at several interventions. Again, I, I speak of the Best Buy and we looked at the four categories I mentioned earlier, tobacco, alcohol, cardiovascular disease and diabetes. And when all is told, we can look at the cost of intervention compared to the health benefits. And we can use that to calculate the return on every dollar spent. And we're getting a return of 2.1 to every dollar spent in terms of health gains. So um, the, the, this particular case for the investment in NCD control in Jamaica is basically showing that um, there is a direct return on investment in terms of life, healthy life years uh, um, saved as well as a 
77, more than double what you, what yes. you actually invest. Okay, so it is a strong, strong case to for for those governments that look more towards the economics of um, running a, a country to show that we have an ability to avert some of our direct economic costs by investing in NCDs. Absolutely. Okay, thank you very much, um, Dr. Barnett. Mr. Barnett, I'm sorry. So let's let's take a little. Um, look at one one particular policy and that's front of package labeling uh which which would have been mentioned by by both of our, our speakers from paho and carfa as one of the best buys in terms of um, ncd prevention as well as um handling the obesity and NCD epidemic. We are joined by Dr. Vanessa White Barrow from the University of Technology to discuss the recent finding mentioned by Dr. Morris um, of a study done in Jamaica as it relates to front of package labeling. Thank you for joining us again, um, Dr. White Barrow. Um, can you give us a little background to the study in terms of why it was done, who were the participants, and um, a little bit on how, how the study was conducted? Okay, so this research was really done to examine and provide reliable evidence of the best performing front of package label for Jamaican consumers, you know, one that would help them to identify the least harmful foods and beverages with respect to the content of those critical nutrients associated with NCDs, namely um, sugars, fats, and sodium. Now in this study, um, it involved a total of 1,206 adult shoppers at popular supermarkets in nine parishes in Jamaica. And these individuals were from various age groups, socioeconomic and education um, groups. Now, in terms of how this study was done, these participants were randomly placed in one of four groups and each of each group was actually shown one of four front of package labeling schemes um, that were applied to the front of made-up products or what we call mock-up products now one group was shown the traffic light labeling scheme which gives numerical information about the nutrient content of these new, um, nutrients that I just named. But it also uses the colors of the traffic light signal to classify the levels of these nutrients in the product. So if it is low, then the color green um, is visible. Um, if it is medium, it is shaded amber. And if it is high in the nutrient, then it is red. So that's for the traffic light labeling scheme. Another group was shown what is called the high in single icon or magnifying glass front of package labeling system, which lists the nutrients um, that are above um, recommended levels for daily consumption. And then there was the um, octagonal warning label which also names the nutrients which are high or above recommended levels in the product. But of course, this information is presented within an octagon shaded black. Um, and interestingly, this label was also the one that is included in the CARICOM Regional Organization for Standards and Quality Proposal, CROSSQ, um, that um, they hope for will be adopted by CARICOM in its implementation. Now, the fourth group that we consider the control group was the group that was shown the nutrition facts upfront label, which only gives numerical information about the nutrient content um, in the product. So the other, those groups, the other three groups of participants were compared with this um, control group. Now, the products that 
um, presented the information on the front of package label were actually presented in random order as well um, to successive participants. And each participant was asked to do three important tasks. One, to indicate or select the product they would buy. The second task was to list harmful options that they will select. And the third would, to ident would be to identify the nutrients in the product that were in excess. So basically that's how the study was um, carried out among our participants. Okay, thank you, Dr. Boydbar. And what were the key findings and implications for the for Jamaica and, and by extension the Caribbean? From the research, um, what was clear was that the participants that were shown the octagonal warning labels, they chose to purchase the least harmful options or none of the products um, shown more often compared to the other participants or groups of participants. Um, they were also the ones who correctly identified the least harmful um, product option more frequently. And those participants, same ones that were presented with the octagonal um, warning labels, they also identified the product containing excessive, excessive amounts of sodium sugar saturated fat um, correctly more frequently when they looked at the product options. So, you know, it did tell us that the participants that were showed the octagonal um, warning labels, they were the ones that correctly understood the nutrient content in the product when you compare them with the control group as well as the other two um, groups of participants exposed to the magnifying glass and the traffic light um, labeling systems. Thank you. So coming out clearly that the octagonal warning label is, is superior in allowing persons to identify um, the unhealthy foods. And this ties back into the, the evaluation studies of the implementation of the octagonal warning labels in Chile, which demonstrate that they did work in terms of reduction of consumption and allowing persons to be able to identify the healthier choice. Thank you, Dr. White Barrow, again. So in closing today, I would like to say a special thank you to our guests who um, took the time to, to speak with us to discuss these important topics today. Dr. Audrey Morris um, from the PAHO WHO Office for Jamaica, Dr. Tamu Davidson uh, from the Caribbean Public Health Agency, Mr. Jasper Barnett from the Ministry of Health and Wellness Jamaica, as well as Dr. Vanessa White Barrow from the University of Technology, Jamaica. I'm so happy we had the opportunity to have this important, very important discussion today. And what came out clearly as we spoke is that leading health organizations worldwide, globally, regionally have recommended Best Buys, a suit of effective evidence-based food policies to address the growing NCD and obesity epidemic and to, as Dr. Davidson put it, to help make the healthier choice, the easier choice, by creating a healthier food environment. Um, the costs of NCDs are high, but the costs of inaction are even higher. Food policies can only benefit the country and the region and have, based on our discussion, with countries such as Mexico and Chile demonstrated a positive effect on reducing the consumption of healthy foods. And of course, now more than ever, there is a strong case for investing in population-wide food policies to address the NCD epidemic. Thank you again to our guests for discussing with us and thank you to our listeners for joining us today. Be sure to join us for the next episode where we will be talking to our youth about issues impacting them in relation to healthy lifestyle practices. 
In case you missed any of what we discussed on this podcast, you can visit the Heart Foundation of Jamaica's website, www.heartfoundation.org, to listen to the podcast recording. For more information on non-communicable diseases, visit the website and social media platforms of the Heart Foundation of Jamaica. 